Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask God's guidance on our study. Father, we're thankful for your word, that you have given us your word down through the ages in a way that addresses all of the concerns, all the issues, all the problems, all the challenges that we face in life. It is through your word that we learn that as human beings we're created in your image and in your likeness, and we are designed to glorify you and to serve you. And yet, due to Adam's original sin, there is a basic flaw that has entered into the human race, known as sin, and yet you have provided a perfect salvation for sin. The only way that we know about the problem and know about the solution is through your word, and it is through your word that we learn who you are, we learn what our purpose is in life, and we learn how we are to serve you, how we are to grow, and how uh, how we are to think as we face the issues of life. Now, Father, as we begin this new series, as a study of Paul's epistle to the Colossians, we pray that you would challenge us with the important teaching that's here related to uh, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and his majesty and how he is the one who is able to, who has supplied everything for us and is able to meet our every need and provide for us in every situation in life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Since I just returned from a little over two weeks of being gone and being away on a missions trip to Ukraine, as I do every January, it's always a time for me to reflect a little bit on uh, being away from the congregation. This is a challenge that every pastor faces at times, that it's important to be away from the congregation. And uh, the situation was has been no different throughout the centuries. I'm re- reminded of a episode in church history where a pastor had to make a tough decision because he faced a problem in his congregation. They were being uh, distracted and confused by a strange combination of ideas that had become very dominant uh, within the culture uh, out of which they were saved. And these ideas still held them back in terms of their own spiritual life and still provided uh, a basic temptation for them. And this young pastor didn't quite know how to handle uh, 
the circumstances as this uh, teaching that surrounded them in the culture in which they lived uh, seemed to have more and more of an attraction for people in his congregation. Like many pastors, he needed advice, he needed some continuing education, and he needed to meet with some more experienced pastors. And so he made the decision to leave and to go uh, spend time with some of these other pastors and with his mentor, and that was not an easy decision because it was at a time when travel took a long time, and he would not be gone for simply a week or two, but he would be gone from his congregation uh, for two or three months at least. He had to travel approximately a 1,000 miles as the crow flies, but in those days you couldn't fly anywhere. You could either take a ship or you could uh, walk, and that was about it. Nothing traveled any faster than the wind or a horse. This pastor's name was Epaphras, and he had been trained, personally trained, by the Apostle Paul, and he was the pastor of this church in Colossae. And he faced a problem which we now refer to as the Colossian heresy. It was a strange mix of a Greek philosophy and legalistic ideas out of Judaism, along with a mix of Persian dualism and a number of other odd ideas sprinkled in here and there just to give it a little pizzazz. He was at a loss, like many pastors are, on how to deal with these issues as they came up, and so he turned over the congregation to uh, one of the men in the church, a man by the name of Archippus, and he left on his journey to Rome. And then an unusual thing happened once he arrived in Rome and spent time with Paul and Timothy and some of the other uh, of, Timothy, of uh, the apostles' young men that, and pastors that he had trained, is that he too was uh, put under arrest in Rome and was a joint prisoner, a co-prisoner with the apostle Paul while he was there. So you never know what happens, what can happen to a pastor when he takes off on a trip. God may have some other plans. So this is the what took place, and because Epaphras was arrested, the Apostle Paul addressed the problem in a, in a letter, and he sent it back to Colossae by way of a messenger they were familiar with, a man named uh, Tychicus, who took the letter along with another epistle, one to the church in Ephesus, in order to address the problems there. And so this morning we are going to begin our study of the epistle to the Colossians. It's rather a short epistle, especially when you realize that um, it's only four chapters, but most of the fourth chapter has to do with uh, Paul relating personal details related to a number of the uh, younger men who were with him in Rome and who were familiar to the uh, church in Colossae, and so he just gives a little personal update. Uh, a lot like the last chapter in Romans where he conveys a lot of personal greetings from different, uh, uh, different men that are with him. The epistle to the Colossians is a book that focuses on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the significance of that for our uh, spiritual life, for the way we think and the way we live. So this morning what I want to do is begin just going through some basic uh, introductory material on uh, this epistle. Next Sunday I'll come in, as I usually do, and cover the entire epistle as a whole so that we can understand uh, the, just the letter as, as it was originally 
uh, given as it was originally presented to the church when uh, Tychicus arrived in Colossae, he would have come in front of the congregation, he would have unrolled uh, the scroll, and he would have read the entire epistle from the first verse to the end. Now, I'm not going to read it from beginning to end. I encourage you to do that in the uh, coming weeks so that you become familiar with the material in Colossians. But what I will do is uh, cover it in terms of the basic uh, doctrinal uh, emphases and themes so that we have a good overview of what we will cover when we begin to uh, take it apart verse by verse in about uh, two weeks in the third lesson. The author of this epistle is the Apostle Paul. This is clear because there are three times within this epistle when Paul identifies uh, himself as the writer. In the first chapter, in chapter 1, verses one, verse 1, and again in verse uh, 23, and again in verse 25, he emphasizes the fact that he is the writer of this, uh, this epistle, and again in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 18. So 1, 1, 1, 23 and 25, and 4, 18 identify the apostle Paul as an apostle, as a minister, that's in verse 25, who's received a stewardship from God, and then again in 4, 18. Uh, it's He has a handwritten salutation, as he states, in chapter 4, verse 18, which is typical of Paul. So there are many characteristics of this epistle which uh, are similar to other things that we find in Paul's letters. He mentions a number of individuals in this letter. These are individuals who are well-known associates of the Apostle Paul. He mentions Timothy, he mentions Aristarchus, and Onesimus, who was the slave that had escaped from his owner uh, Philemon, uh, who is also sent back with Tychicus with this particular letter, uh, and Tychicus carried letters to Ephesus, to Colossae, and to Philemon, who lived in uh, Colossae. And, in fact, it is likely that the church met in the home of Philemon, and we get that from uh, information in the epistle uh, to Philemon. Uh, Mark is also mentioned in this epistle, along with Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. All of these are men who are well known as Paul's associates. Also, there's another thing that's distinct about this letter to Colossians, and that is that it is very similar to the epistle to the Ephesians. It is likely that Paul wrote Ephesians first and then Colossians, although there's a lot of debate and we can't be certain about that, but I think that um, uh, first he wrote Ephesians, then he wrote Colossians. There's a lot of similarity, a lot of parallels, although the emphasis in each epistle is slightly different. So we'll cover some things and we'll go back and forth in terms of various parallel passages uh, into our study of uh, in our study of Colossians. We'll also look at parallel passages in uh, in Ephesians. Now, through most of the history of Christianity, there's been no debate over who wrote this epistle. But in the 19th century, you had the rise of a movement that is usually referred to as uh, 20th century. I mean, 19th century. Protestant liberalism. 
technically in scholarly circles it goes by other names such as higher criticism and some other names like that. But they, they approach the Bible from a skeptical viewpoint. They uh, didn't believe that God could really speak to men. This was a movement that was generated out of the, uh, out of the Enlightenment. And they did not believe that there was really uh, the capability of God to communicate to man or for man to really understand, understand God. And so, uh, they approached the Bible as if it was every, any other book that had been written in history. And instead of being God's word to man, they looked at the Bible as simply just another record of a group of people's, uh, individual experiences, uh, with God. It's those assumptions that govern liberal theology, and basically they put man at the center of the universe because man is the one who is the ultimate determiner of truth rather than God. For liberal theologians, all religion is subjective, all religion is equal, and all religion is invented by man, and there's no such thing as, uh, as eternal truth or objective truth. What we see in our culture today, which we call postmodernism, is simply the uh, end result of the kind of thinking that was first uh, being evident in the 19th century. And so the 19th century saw this rise of this rationalistic philosophy, which is just the opposite of what Christianity is. In fact, it violates the very warning that the Apostle Paul gives in Colossians chapter 2, warning these uh, Colossian believers against this very type of rationalism. In Colossians 2 verse 8, the Apostle Paul warns, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And so with the rise of the 19th century rationalism, there was this uh, criticism of a lot of what had been held and believed traditionally. There was a denial of Pauline authorship on a number of, of epistles, denial of uh, that, that the Gospels were even written by men who knew Jesus, but they were written 100 or 150 years, uh, years later. Now, when it came to Colossians, they tried to prove this by saying that there was uh, significant differences between uh, the style and the writing in Colossians and what we find in other epistles of Paul. For example, they would emphasize the fact that the vocabulary is different, and it is different. But that's because it's a different subject matter. And if uh, you're writing to address the issues related to justification and righteousness, like Paul does in, in Romans, then you will use vocabulary that is that pertains to that subject. When you're writing about a, the heresy in Colossae, uh, you're going to use vocabulary related to the problems there, and you don't even mention righteousness or justification uh, which Paul talked about in Romans, but doesn't even mention in Colossians. Different topic demands different vocabulary. Actually, there are 34 words in Colossians that are distinct and do not appear in any other of Paul's writings. Uh, words such as visible, uh, supremacy, uh, fill up, the, the Greek word play, uh, play, play Roma is used in this epistle, 
philosophy, uh, deity, these are words that are distinct in this particular epistle. But on the other hand, words like righteousness, dikaiosune, salvation, uh, revelation, and uh, some other words of Paul do not, which are common in other epistles, are not found here. But again, this easily is explained by the fact that Paul had a very large vocabulary, and he's addressing a different topic in this particular epistle. Another argument that was uh, presented against Pauline authorship was the fact that there were some unusual grammatical constructions in, uh, in this epistle. Phrases like the hope of glory, the body of flesh, uh, growth from God, the reward of inheritance, uh, are, are phrases that uh, seem a little uh, awkward. They are stylistically different from the way Paul normally expressed these, but that's just because uh, that's easily explained in terms of different circumstances and, again, uh, different subject matter. Whenever we compare other epistles by Paul, for example, little is said about Paul's authorship of Romans. Most everybody uh agrees that Romans was written by Paul, same as 2 Corinthians, and it shows that Paul's style and vocabulary can change dramatically based on circumstances. So uh, the argument that Paul, the attempt to deny Pauline authorship of Colossians, really never gained much ground, and by the 20th century, it was pretty much accepted by all that Paul uh, did indeed write the epistle to the Colossians. Now, we ought to understand a little bit of something about the people to whom Paul is writing. He's writing to this uh, city that is located in the Lycus River Valley in the uh, Roman province of Asia, the area that historically had been known as Phrygia. It is was a major city, a large commercial center, uh, 400 years earlier, but since then, due to the rise of two neighboring cities, Laodicea and Heropolis, they had lost uh, a lot of their population and prestige, and so it was a much smaller town in the first century than it had been uh, three or four hundred years earlier. It was located on a major crossroads, and this map gives us an indication of that. We see the that by the time of of uh, the first century, let me get my, there we go. By the time of the first century, the, this east-west highway had moved north and went through Laodicea so that the commercial center, the trade center aspect, had moved from Colossae north to Laodicea. But in earlier centuries, that trade route had gone through Colossae. Uh, it also lies on a major uh, north-south trade route that moved from areas around Smyrna, which is modern Izmir, through Sardis, Philadelphia, cities that we're familiar with from our uh, study of the uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, down to the Mediterranean, uh, down in near uh, Lycia. Another interesting thing that we should learn about Phrygia is that this had certain uh, religious significance because of the uh, history of uh, the worship of the Phrygian uh, earth goddess, mother goddess named Sibylle, and I'll get into that uh, in just a minute. Now, the name Colossi is thought to have derived from the fact that there 
at one time there was a very large statue there that was referred to as a colossus. And because of large uh, outcroppings of stone found in this area, and uh, but nobody really knows for sure why it was called that. It is located, as we see from this map, about uh, 100 miles east of Ephesus. And it is located just about 10 or 12 miles from Laodicea and Hierapolis in an area that by the time of the first century is the Roman province of Asia. This area was not visited by the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. In fact, as we'll, we'll see, on the second missionary journey, the Holy Spirit had prevented him from going into this province and had directed him to the north of Asia and eventually led him over across uh, the uh, Bosphorus over to the area of Thrace and into Europe when he took, where he took the gospel for the first time uh, on his second missionary journey. But on his uh, third missionary journey, he traveled from Antioch in Syria, and he would have traveled probably th- right through this uh, the Lycus River Valley, although according to what Luke describes, he didn't plant any churches on this trip. He was just simply uh, traveling to get to Ephesus. But in Ephesus, he established a school, and from that school, he sent out numerous uh, men as pastors, evangelists, who established and planted churches all through the province of Asia, so that the scripture says that no one in this area uh, escaped hearing the gospel. And it was during that time that this church was planted. Now, Colossae had a rich heritage and a rich history. Uh, we don't know when it was originally founded. We don't know how long the city had been in existence before the 5th century B.C. But the first time that the city is mentioned in any surviving historical document was during the time of the uh, Persian Wars with Greece. And when Artaxerxes, the, or rather when Xerxes first invaded Greece in around 480, 475 B.C., uh, Herodotus uh, describes Colossae as a large city in Phrygia, and uh, and it was near there that the army from Persia uh, passed. Uh, later in that century, about 401, there was a another ar- Greek army raised by Xenophon, who was an Athenian general who led 10,000 Greeks to Persia to join with Cyrus, the brother of Artaxerxes II, who was leading a rebellion against his brother uh, in order to depose him. And unfortunately, Cyrus was uh, killed in a major battle, and then uh, Xenophon had to lead his 10,000 Greeks in, a ret- in an orderly retreat uh, back to Greece. And on their way, they camped near Colossae. And Xenophon recorded the details of both their march to Persia and their retreat, and he described Colossae at that time as a large and prosperous uh, city. It had strategic importance because of its location in the Lycus River Valley and the fact that it overlooked the Lycus River Valley. And in this picture, we see, uh, which is taken from the site of the remains of the city, you can see how it looked over the valley towards the mountains uh, in the distance. 
Uh, it's an area that's quite attractive. They have uh, numerous uh, streams that run through the area as it carries water down from the mountains to bring uh, water down to the valley, which is uh, uh, quite fertile and is a tr- tremendous source of, uh, of agriculture for that particular area. Now, the two other cities that grew up within 10 miles of here that are mentioned also in uh, Colossae are Laodicea and Hierapolis. Uh, Laodicea was founded uh, sometime after the death of Alexander the Great when his empire had been divided into uh, four parts. Laodicea was founded and named for the wife of the uh, Seleucid king, of Assyria that uh, he divorced in order to marry uh, Berenice, the daughter of one of the Ptolemies, Ptolemy II, in order to cement an alliance between the Seleucid Empire in Syria and the Egyptian Empire of the Ptolemies. And so that city was founded around 190 B.C., and it began to flourish. It was a center of industry and became quite famous for the uh, black wool of its sheep. And as a result of that and the explosion of the population in Laodicea, the highway, the major trade route moved north from Colossae, and at that time Colossae began to diminish in terms of its significance. Uh, The other city that's mentioned is Hierapolis, and this was uh, a city that was located near the hot springs of uh, Parmucula today, which is quite a beautiful area. And it has a lot of uh, hot springs. We went there on our trip uh, uh, the last time we, we took a tour of Israel. We went to Turkey, and we visited the hot springs there. And it was a place that had uh, a number of, uh, of, of uh, hot springs. It was known for its uh, medicinal value, and so there were many people who would travel there in order to go to the baths and uh, be cured of whatever illnesses uh, that they had. And so uh, these, they, both those two cities grew where Colossae began to diminish. And then in uh, A.D. 60, just a couple of years before Paul wrote this epistle to the Colossians, there was a major earthquake that hit this area uh, that did tremendous damage to all three cities. And uh, both Laodicea and Hierapolis were more prosperous, so they rebuilt rather quickly and it took longer for Colossae to rebuild. So, again, people would move away from Colossae and move into these other cities. So by the time that we come to the middle of the, uh, or the latter part, rather, 60 to 64 uh, A.D., Colossae is now considered something of a small town, as is indicated by the uh, Greek geographer uh, Strabo. So the people, though, had came from a, a background prior to the uh, Roman Empire taking over the area, it was uh, the the kingdom of Phrygia. And Phrygia also was known because of the contribution they made in terms of religion and the worship of a mother-son cult, the Sibylle Addis cult. Sibylle was the mother, and here is a statue of her. And Attis is the sun, and this was one of various cults that grew up in the ancient world that I believe were satanic counterfeits that anticipated uh, some sort of resurrection motif in, uh, in the, the life of the Messiah. Satan was fully aware from the Old Testament. I think there are passages that indicate uh, the res- that there would be a resurrection of the Messiah, 
And so Satan inserted these into various uh, uh, cultic elements. You had the uh, Isis, Osiris uh, religion in Egypt. You had uh, you had the Sibylli uh, uh, Attis cult here and various others uh, in the ancient world imitated a sort of resurrection. But it was just a cycle that explained death in the fall and then new life coming in the spring. Every now and then you find liberal, uh, those who reject Christianity, trying to explain Christianity in terms of just another one of these kinds of cults. But there are, uh, again, vast differences. What is significant for us about uh, the Sibylle Addis cult is that in the worship of Sibylle, she's the earth mother goddess. And so this is an ancient pagan form of earth worship and just a variation in the ancient world on environmentalism. And so there'll be the opportunity as we go through Colossians to talk a little bit about how uh, paganism constructs a, a worship of nature, and it's always grounded in a worship of nature, and that this is what undergirds much of of the modern environmentalist movement. Now, on the other side, there should be a firm Christian theology of stewardship, responsible stewardship of creation. But these, while they may sound similar in terms of responsible use of the environment, ultimately uh, ultimately are different and ultimately collide because in Christian thinking, the earth was created and man was put in charge of the earth and is to utilize and develop the resources of the planet that God has given in order to develop and prosper in terms of civilization, whereas within uh, pagan cults there is always the desire to uh, promote nature in and of itself and to not utilize nature or exploit nature for man's benefit, and thus pagan cultures would often not advance. If you think about the um, American Indians that came here and for over a thousand years on the uh, in the Western Hemisphere did nothing to it. There's no advance of civilization, no advance uh, of, of any kind of technology, no utilization of any of the uh, resources of nature, they would just go and, ca- and camp somewhere, and until they had completely uh, utilized everything in that area, and then they would move to another area. But their culture, their civilization never grew, uh, never advanced. And so we'll develop a little bit along the way in terms of understanding a biblical view of creation and the responsible, responsible use of creation. But part of this is the background. Also, you had a heavy... <coughs> Excuse me, a heavy dose of mysticism in the Sibylle Addis cult, and within that um, within that cult, the um, various uh, priestesses would gather around, and they would uh, they would uh, have drunken orgies, and they would dance, and they would speak in tongues or various languages. In fact, in the second century A.D. after Christ. There was a man by the name of Montanus who had, was a, had been a priest in the Sibylle Addis cult, and he had uh, become converted to Christianity, but he still thought in terms of the pagan mysticism of the Sibylle Addis cult. And he had two women who were uh, sort of priestesses that worked with him, and in the Montanus uh, 
heresy that developed in the late second century A.D., there was a, a sort of a uh, this emphasis on emotionalism, and uh, there's not uh, evidence that there was anything like uh, ecstatic utterances or some sort of t- pseudo language, but that easily could have been there because that was typical in the um, uh, in the Sibley Addis cult out of which they came. And that influenced a few Christian leaders in the ancient world like Tertullian and some others, but mostly it was recognized that this was a fraudulent uh, counterfeit of the uh, spiritual gift of tongues, and so it was rejected, and Montanism, as it was called, was declared a uh, heresy. Now, in in, uh, Colossae, there was also a rather large Jewish population which brought to to Colossae an element of of Judaism and a recognition of certain things that were in the Old Testament. Under Antiochus the Great in approximately 200 B.C., uh, 2,000 Jewish families from uh, Mesopotamia and Babylon had been moved from uh, that location to this area of Phrygia. And during the 200 years from that time up to the time of of, uh, Christ, uh, these Jews prospered. They established businesses and became uh, the foundation of the economy in the Lycus River Valley uh, area. They were involved in uh, production of uh, cloth, uh, material for making tents, wools, dyes, and many things of that nature. So that by the time of the... Uh, middle part of the first century, there were approximately twenty to 30,000 Jews living in the Lycus River Valley between these three different cities. It was in that context that the uh, church was founded. Uh, we're not told exactly who founded the church. It was not the Apostle Paul because there were uh, various statements made in this letter indicating that Paul only knew of this church from the reports that were brought to him by Epaphras. For example, in Colossians 1.4, he talks about the fact that he's only heard of their faith and heard of their love for all the saints. In Colossians 1.7, he says that he learned this from Epaphras, who also declared for them their love in the Spirit. Uh, he mentions in Colossians 2.1 that there were many there uh, that had not ever seen his face. He had never been to Colossae, never been involved in this particular congregation. And in Colossians 4.12, he indicates that the only way he knows about them is through what he has been told by Epaphras. So this congregation was not founded by the Apostle Paul. This is the only epistle that he wrote to some to a group that he did not have a personal uh, connection with. We believe, based on Acts chapter 19, that this church was founded as a result of the men that were sent out from uh, Ephesus by the Apostle Paul, and Epaphras would have been one of these young men who were trained in the uh, seminary that the Apostle Paul started there in uh, in Ephesus. And this is indicated in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, that he continued there in Ephesus for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia, remember earlier he had been prevented from going to Asia, so that it was all about the right timing as far as the Holy Spirit was concerned. And on this, at this time, uh, he was, he, the gospel was carried throughout Asia by the men that he trained in 
uh, in Ephesus. That's, that should be a pattern for many missionaries. That's like what Jim Myers is doing uh, in Kiev, establishing the uh, Word of God Bible College there, two-year curriculum, and cranking out uh, young men and women who are then going out throughout Ukraine and into other areas. There's one couple that's down in Turkey ministering in a pr- primarily uh, Muslim area and many others that are uh, taking the gospel to different areas of the world as a result of what they've learned there uh, in his uh, training school. Acts 19.10 emphasizes that it's during this time that all those in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, that in verse 20 the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed, and in verse 31 states that uh, for three years he did not cease to warn everyone night and day uh, with tears. And so that indicates the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And one of the things we will spend time on is what we learn about the emphases that the pastoral ministry should have as a result of what we read in the epistle uh, of Colossians. So among those that were trained were the man, uh, were Epaphras, and Epaphras needs advice on how to handle uh, this problem that is coming up in uh, Colossians, in Colossae, known as the uh, Colossian heresy. Now, even though there's not uh, some direct statements made in this epistle related to um, uh, the Sibylle Addis cult, that was a heavy part of the background, and that kind of mysticism uh, was is evident in some of the things that Paul says in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. But this Colossian her- heresy is really a blend of different ideas. We run into the same kind of thing today. There's all manner of blends of religions today. Uh, people think that uh, they can just pick a little bit of this and a little bit of that, mix it together and add a sprinkling of something else, and they come up with whatever they think works for them and make some new religion. And there's always problems with these views. Religion isn't something that you can believe in because it just, quote, works for you. It has to be something that has objective reality and objective truth and is at least uh, internally coherent and consistent. And yet most of what most people believe is just nothing more than uh, a bunch of irrational bilge that somehow makes them feel good rather than deal with what the Word of God says about their basic condition as a sinner. People don't like to recognize they're a sinner and that they are in obedience to God because in arrogance they are rejecting the truth. And most people do not, do not have the humility to accept the fact that they are uh, inherently uh, evil. And so what we find in Colossae is uh, just three or four blend, three or four different strands, rather, of different religions that are mixed together. One of these came from Judaism and emphasized the obedience and observance to various Old Testament laws, rituals, and ceremonies. Then that was mixed up with some elements from Greek philosophy, emphasizing a special level of knowledge known as gnosis, which is the Greek word for knowledge, and later was applied in the second century to a specific type of uh, religious or philosophical teaching known as Gnosticism. But Gnosticism in and of itself does not come along until the middle of the 20th century. But a lot of these ideas 
were evident and present in Greek culture uh, even before the first century A.D. So from Greek philosophy, it picks up this idea of a special uh, knowledge that's only available to an elite few, and they have to have some sort of special experience or special knowledge in order to reach this uh, super level of uh, Christianity. Then from uh, various other religious sources, they picked up the idea of dualism, which could have come from uh, from Persia. They pick up some mystical ideas as well and blend these things uh, together. The idea of dualism is that uh, uh, matter is pitted against the, the spiritual of the soul and the mind, and matter is considered evil, and the soul and the mind are considered uh, to be good. And so you have this eternal competing principle of good versus evil, but it just goes on and on infinitely in a regression into eternity past with no ultimate resolution in terms of an external creator or the definition of, uh, of what is absolutely true and absolutely uh, good versus that which is evil. Where do you get these ideas of good and evil? Somebody comes along and says, I don't agree with your ideas. I don't like Christianity. I think it's bad. Well, where do you get this idea of bad? Uh, on what basis are you evaluating uh, Christianity? Uh, what gives you the right to talk about anything in terms of right or wrong uh, if everything is basically the same? So there are, that's just one of the various internal problems that, um, that you can run into in terms of modern religion. Another feature of the Colossian heresy was something that it became evident later in Gnosticism as well, is this ladder of emanations. And this goes back to really an idea in Aristotle that there was a chain of being and that you, everything in, 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 the, uh, in life is related in this chain of being. Some has a very simple form of being or existence, and at the top you have more complex forms of being or existence. God's at the top of the ladder, man's at the bottom. The problem with this is that from a biblical viewpoint, God is completely distinct from everything in his creation. And in these forms of Greek philosophy, they just make everything part of the same chain and so you just move up and down the chain, and God is nothing more than a super man. He is just a man blown up much bigger, but he still is nothing more than a reflection of man and not, uh, not the creator who is completely distinct and separate from his creator. And with this ladder of emanations, what you have is God at the top, but God can't directly communicate to man who's further down the chain, so there has to be all of these intermediate steps. And what would fill in these steps would be the angels and in uh, strict forms of Gnosticism that came up later on. You had the uh, Old Testament God, you had Jesus, then you had angels, and all of these were uh, different forms of intermediate uh, beings between God, whatever that is at the top, and man further down. So this ladder of emanations is really consistent with just an early religious form uh, of, uh, of evolutionary type of thought. Fifth, we have angel worship, because if you have these intermediaries that are uh, sent out by God, 
then you would start worshiping them as well. And so there's evidence that they were worshiping the angels. Uh, we see evidence of that kind of thing that developed into the worship of saints later on and that kind of thing in Roman Catholic theology. It's the same, uh, the same error. Then uh, six, there's a denial of the deity of Christ. This is at the very core because Jesus is a creature and he is not sufficient. This is why Paul spends so much time in the first uh, two chapters talking about the fact that in Christ the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily, that he is fully God and therefore he is fully sufficient for solving all of mankind's uh, problems. So this is the Colossian heresy. And what's so great about this, as the focus is on the sufficiency of Christ, is it helps us to realize that no matter what the issues are that we face today, the solution is still the same. It is still the sufficiency of Christ. There's three areas of sufficiency that are always attacked uh, by false t- teaching and by Satan. The sufficiency of Christ, the sufficiency of grace, and the sufficiency of God's word. If God's word, if God's grace, and if Jesus Christ aren't enough, then where are you going to get help? Where are you going to go to psychology, or are you going to go to science, or are you going to go to sociology, or are you going to go to some other area of human thought, and thus you're going to dilute and diminish the power of God, and you end up destroying grace, you end up destroying scripture, and you end up destroying uh, the reality of who Jesus Christ is. So this is the reason that Paul is writing. Now, he writes from prison. Now, he's really a, under house arrest. He is not in a jail cell at this time. He's, he has two imprisonments in Rome. This is his first, in, first uh, uh, imprisonment when he was brought from uh, uh, Israel, brought from Judea to Rome. He refers to himself several times in this way in what's referred to as the, the uh, prison epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Philippians, and Philemon. He refers to himself in Ephesians 3.1 as the prisoner of Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 4.1, it's the prisoner of the Lord. In Ephesians 6.20, as an ambassador in chains. And he is also in uh, prison with uh, Tychicus, who he refers to as a beloved brother uh, and faithful minister. Or rather, he's in prison with Epaphras, and he is sending Tychic- the message, the letter to Ephesians and to Colossians, via Tychicus, who's a beloved brother and a faithful minister in Ephesians 6.21, and also referred to in the same way in Colossians 4.7 as a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. Now, there are some uh, unique or distinct characteristics about this, uh, this epistle. Number one, it's one of the most Christological uh, books of the New Testament. Jesus Christ is the focus. We learn more about Jesus Christ in this epistle than we do in many of the others because the focus is on who he is and less on what he has done, although that is certainly an emphasis in the middle of the second chapter. Secondly, it's one of the strongest epistles, strongest statements against the use of unaided reason, unaided human reason to arrive at truth. There's a warning in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, which I read a minute ago, that believers should not adopt a philosophy that is not built exclusively upon divine revelation. Another unique characteristic is there are no Old Testament citations in Colossians. Even though that background is evident, 
uh, when we read through Colossians, there are no Old Testament citations. Fourth, it exhibits uh, the most similarities uh, with another canonical letter, such as Ephesians, written by the same author. Uh, there are some key doctrines that we'll, just, we'll uh, cover in Colossians. Prayer in 1, 3, uh, 3 through 11, a tremendous prayer. So we'll start off with covering the doctrine of prayer as we study this particular prayer. And then he closes with a prayer in 4, 2 through 4. There's also indication and mention of pastoral objectives as it relates to Epaphras and others in 1, 9 through 12 and in 1, 29. Uh, regarding Christology, we'll learn a tremendous amount about Jesus Christ as the architect and the sustainer of the universe, that he is the head of all things, which doesn't mean the source, it means the authority, and especially the authority over the church. He is called the image of the invisible God and the embodiment of, of all deity uh, within Jesus Christ. He is uh, fourth, the source of the Christian's life of uh, peace and joy. He's the rewarder of obedient believers, so we'll get into rewards and inheritance. And he is referred to as Christ in us who is our hope of glory, all that related to Christology. We'll get into some elements of angelology and Satanology for the people are being uh, led into or tempted to go into angel worship. So we'll get into aspects of the angelic conflict in Colossians 1, 13 and 17 and in Colossians 2, 15. There's also reference to the gospel and the fruit of the gospel. We'll need to study that and mention of the fact that we are transferred at salvation into the kingdom of his uh, beloved son. There's also a great emphasis on spiritual life and growth in Colossians 1, 22 to 24, uh, 27 to 28, and in Colossians 2, 2 through 3, 6 through 7, in all of chapters 3 and 4. There's an emphasis on positional truth and sanctification, uh, legalism and why it, what it is and why it's wrong, rewards and inheritance, uh, the old man versus the new man, which is an important doctrine to dis, to uh, investigate in relation to sanctification, uh, forgiveness, love, and keys to spiritual growth in chapters 3, uh, verses 15 through 17, and then to the emphasis on the spiritual life in our relationships in chapter 3, verses 18 through 4, 1. And then finally, in terms of ecclesiology, there's an emphasis on the mystery doctrine of the church and the body of Christ. What we need to remember, the great message that we have here in Colossians, is the sufficiency of Christ. This is a message that unfortunately is lost today. In the last several years at the uh, Chafer Conference that we've had in March, we've tried to emphasize different aspects of that theme. Last year, we focused on creation and evolution. And the key issue in creation evolution is, is the word of God sufficient for understanding the origin of the universe and the origin of mankind? If we look to science to give us absolute truth there, then we're denying the sufficiency of Scripture in terms of who man is and where he came from. When the, a couple of years before, we looked at the whole topic of... Uh, of Christian psychology and the issue of psychology as it's been developed in modern times from Sigmund Freud and the sufficiency of the scripture 
for teaching us how to behave, how to handle problems, how to respond to problems in our background, and that the Scripture is sufficient for any problem that we face in life. We've looked at other areas regarding uh, salvation in terms of the grace of God, that the work of Christ on the cross is sufficient to solve all the problems that we face in terms of sin, that Jesus Christ paid it all on the cross, that all we have to do to be saved is to simply trust in him, and his death is applied to us, and we it's not on the basis of our works, either front-loaded, as many legalistic systems do, or back-loaded, as Lordship Salvation does, and which is more prevalent among uh, many evangelicals. And so, again, we see the importance of stressing that the Word of God is sufficient. That means it's enough. It doesn't need to be added to. That the grace of God is sufficient, and that Jesus Christ, because he is the eternal God-man, is sufficient to take care of every situation, every problem that we face in life. And so next week we'll get into the details of uh, Colossians a little bit as we go through give an overview of the entire epistle with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to take a look at this, uh, this epistle, the tremendous truths that are here, especially those that relate to uh, the person, the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the eternal second person of the, of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, and that he therefore is able to die on the cross for our sins and provide a perfect salvation for us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins so that by simply trusting in him, you can have eternal life. It's not based on works. It's not validated by works. It is simply your belief that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge each one of us with the things that we've studied, the principles we've highlighted this morning, and that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to each one of us how this applies in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.